I'd like to invite the children to be dismissed to their program this morning. And if you would take your Bibles or the Pew Bible in front of you, we'll be uh, looking at the book of Luke, among a few other places in Scripture today. Uh, And normally Pastor Josh has for you the uh, page number in the Pew Bible, and I forgot to look this morning. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56 will be our anchor passages this morning. Let me read that for you this morning. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from the heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Luke describes Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem that last week of his earthly life in chapters 19, verses 37 and 38. It says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples. Now, when it refers to the disciples here, it's not talking to just the twelve. It's talking about all the disciples, all the believers and followers of Jesus. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They cheered his arrival. And you'll find as we go along today, this is a contrast in expectations. They were expecting an earthly king. Some were expecting a spiritual one. Most expected an earthly king. But there isn't a lot of doubt about what was in the minds of these disciples. We mentioned last week that they rightly saw this as the fulfillment, some of them, saw it as the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Their long-awaited Messiah had finally come, the King of Israel, and not just Israel, but all of the earth. Jerusalem would be his capital city, from which he would rule the world in peace and righteousness. What a day. Can you feel the excitement that must have been there? Hearts pounding, palms sweaty, kind of like warriors getting ready for battle. Here comes their king. How would he do it? Would he whip the crowd into a frenzy and then storm the praetorium? Or maybe it would be a people's revolution. Or maybe he would just call down fire from heaven to destroy God's enemies. Would any of his followers be lost in the struggle? The atmosphere had to be pretty exciting and incredibly tense. 
on the other side of things, the Pharisees had a couple of reasons to silence this sort of welcome. On one hand, Jesus was a threat to their authority. And Mark 15.10 flat out tells us that they envied his popularity. Mark, Mark 5.10 says, It was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Secondly, they feared a Roman backlash from this treasonous talk of another king besides Caesar. John 11, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were afraid of the Roman reaction to Jesus coming as a king. So in Luke 19, verses 39 and 40, they told Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the, the very stones would cry out. Creation would cry out hosannas for the coming king. Jesus would not rebuke him for this. And he would not only not rebuke them now, the hour had come. His hour had come. The authority of the Pharisees was essentially over. If the Romans come, they come. He would silence the truth no longer. Clearly, these disciples, this multitude of disciples, their understanding of the kingship of Jesus was flawed. But the coming events would correct us soon enough. To some degree, they were right. Jesus is the king of Israel. His kingdom will bring peace to all nations of the world. And look with me at Revelation 7, though, verses 9 and 10. It sees it like this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. But that is not this day. That is the day to come. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem with folks waving palm branches was a preview of the eternal Palm Sunday, if you will. If the people hadn't cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, then the rocks would have cried out for him. Our worship today, again, is a, in this age, is a rehearsal for the age to come. One day we are going to stand with innumerable millions or billions of believers. Believers from the Philippines, from Mexico, Ukraine, and Africa, and Ecuador, India, Japan, China, Poland, Cameroon, maybe even the United States. Every earthly tribe and nation singing hosannas to the Lord, raising our hands with palm branches, saluting to Christ, and with the sound of a thousand choirs, I can't wait to hear this, we'll sing our song of salvation while Christ looks over those whom he had bought with his blood. Now, if Jesus had taken his throne that day, as his many disciples had hoped and thought he would, we might never be robed in white. 
or wave palms of praise in that age to come. There had to be a cross. That was God's plan for our salvation. There had to be a cross, which is what the disciples did not yet seem to understand. No salvation, no heaven. Back in Luke 9, as he got ready to leave for Jerusalem from Galilee, Jesus had tried to explain this to his 12 guys that had followed him around all over. In verse 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then later in verse 44, he told them, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But verse 45 says, But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Their understanding of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem, as I said, was flawed. They saw him not as their spiritual king, they saw him as their earthly king, moving in to take control. (laughs) And that was what he was wanting to do, to move in and take control of their heart, their soul. But they couldn't understand the spiritual victory that Jesus was about to win in Jerusalem. Victory. Victory over sin, victory over Satan, victory over death, and all the enemies of righteousness and joy. They didn't understand this victory would come at a price, and that was Jesus' own horrible suffering and death. The kingdom that they expected immediately would be thousands of years in coming. And their misunderstanding of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem would result in misunderstanding of the meaning of discipleship, a following. This is why it's important for us to see what they missed so that we don't make the same mistake. And we see, we see friends, families, and strangers making that same mistake every day rejecting their spiritual king. But I want us to to see Jesus resolve to die. Luke 9, 51, 56 shows us how we should not understand Palm Sunday. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And I took that as kind of the, the title of the message today. He set his face toward Jerusalem. To set his face toward Jerusalem meant something different to Jesus than it did for his disciples. Verse 46 shows us the visions of greatness in their minds. It says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. One of my childhood heroes used to say, I am the greatest of all time. He was a good boxer, but he wasn't the greatest of all time. But that argument even came up between a couple of Jesus' disciples, his closest disciples. Jerusalem and glory was within their grasp. But Jesus had had another vision. Luke 13, verse 33. He said, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem meant one thing for Jesus. Death. And he was harboring no illusions that it would be a, a quick and heroic death. In Luke 18, verses 31 to 33, it says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. He knew where he was going and why. When Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, he set his face to die. And let's not forget the mystery of Jesus being 100% man and 100% God. And don't hear this wrong, but he was 100% man and 100% God. He didn't necessarily like the idea of pain. As a man, he might have enjoyed marriage, kids, grandkids, long life, esteem from his community. He had a mom. He had siblings. He had favorite places to retreat to in the mountains. But as God and man, he set his back on all of those things. He set his face toward a vicious scourging and beating and spitting, and mocking, and eventually crucifixion. That could not have been easy. It was not only not easy, it was hard. And I think it's, sadly, interesting that we have to use our imagination to put ourselves in that place, and we still don't know where that goes. We don't have a concept of that kind of suffering. I'm not sure that most of us experience that kind of commitment (laughs) to doing God's plan. Feeling what he felt. But then think about how much he loves us. He told us in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And he chose his love for us over all of those earthly things that we cherish and chase. So if we, see, if we see Jesus' death simply as a result of being betrayed by a deceiver, or envy on the part of Sanhedrin, or if we see his death simply as a result of Pilate's spinelessness, or as a death because of the nails and the spear of the soldiers, it all looks kind of involuntary. And it might make it seem like our salvation that comes from his death was just God's way of making virtue out of necessity. Until we read Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus didn't get all caught up in a, in a web of injustice. And sometimes... As a culture, we tend to root for underdogs, and maybe we like to put him in that role. And he just got caught up in that kind of a web, but that's not the case. The saving benefits of his death in place of us as sinners, they were not afterthoughts. God 
planned it all out. And he did it out of infinite love for us. And he set a time for it to happen. Jesus embodied his Father's love for sinners. And when he saw that the time had come, he set his face to fulfill his mission to die on our behalf. John chapter 10, verse 18, he said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So don't ever make the mistake of thinking that they took Jesus' life. Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He gave up his life. What a journey that must have been. But I want us to look at also the fact that his journey could be, should be, our journey as well. According to the text, when Jesus set out for Jerusalem, it says, He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, whether this rejection was simply because Jesus and his companions were, were hated Jews, or whether it was a per, more personal rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, it doesn't really matter here. The focus then shifts to the disciples' response, specifically the response of James and John. In verse 54, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Maybe this is why Jesus kind of named these brothers the sons of thunder. No. Jesus, we're on our way to victory. Nothing can stop us now. Let the fire fall. Let the judgment begin. Jerusalem will tremble when they see us coming. Verses 55 and 56, though, tell us, but he turned and rebuked them. doesn't give a lot of detail about how he rebuked them, it just he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. What does all that mean? Well, it meant that an incorrect view of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem can lead us to an incorrect view of discipleship. <coughs> if Jesus came as a judge to, to take up his earthly rule, then it would make sense for the sons of thunder to start the judgment when they entered Jerusalem, the holy city. Start it now. But if Jesus came, as he said, not to judge, but to save, then a different form of discipleship was called for. Does discipleship call for deploying God's missiles against the enemies of, of righteousness and in righteous indignation? Say that five times fast. No. Does discipleship mean following him on his road to Calvary, which leads to suffering and death? Well, the answer from the entire New Testament is this. Jesus, the Messiah, came to live a life of sacrificial dying service before he comes a second time to reign in glory. Let me say that again. The Messiah came to live a sacrificial dying service before he comes a second time to reign in glory. So, discipleship 
demands a life of sacrificial, dying service before we can reign with Christ in glory. What James and John, the sons of thunder, had to learn yet was, and as, as do we, by the way, is that Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is our journey. And if he sets his face to go there and die, we need to set our faces to die to ourselves with him. You know, we keep hearing that in church, and I don't want it to be cliche, what it means to die to ourselves. Yeah, I'll get on my soapbox here for a second, but I think the greatest enemy to our spirituality is self. Rather than focus on God and his plan and his love for us and his provision for us and all that, we have a tendency to look to ourselves. And there's nothing there. We can't save ourselves. So don't be tempted to think in opposite thinking. Since Jesus suffered so much and died in our place, we're, uh, we're free to go straight to the head of the class and skip all those exams. <laughs> yeah. He suffered so we could have comfort. He died so we could live. He was abused so we could be esteemed. He gave up the treasures of heaven so we could lay up treasures on earth. Sorry, that's not biblical thinking at all. It's not biblical thinking, and it's contrary to what Jesus told us in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. If anyone would come after me, do what? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. When Jesus set his face toward Calvary, he wasn't just taking our place. He was setting for us a pattern. He's our substitute and our pace setter. He died to save us from the power and the punishment of sin, not from suffering and sacrifices of simplicity for love's sake. Again, look at verses 57 and 58. Jesus corrected James and John's mistaken understanding of discipleship. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What did he mean by that? He expected his disciples to be like him. And he wanted them to know it was costly. His road is not the road to material prosperity. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of us run up here and, and, and kneel at the altar and take a vow of poverty. But Jesus is saying something here about how much comfort and luxury we seek to surround ourselves, how much comfort we pursue in our lives, especially in light of about 16,000 people groups that are still waiting to hear the gospel. Millions of children who are starving through no fault of their own, many people in our own country starving 
because of joblessness or emptiness, especially the emptiness. And that's one of the things that excites me about being a part of this church. I don't perceive a materialistic mindset here at all. That's not to say we're not vulnerable to it, but I don't, I don't perceive one here. There's a generosity in applying God's resources that are stewarded for his work. Here there seems to be a different dream. And we're hearing it from Pastor Josh now. It's, a, it's kind of breaking free of the chains of self-serving commun- uh, consumer culture that we're a part of and doing something radical instead, like reaching out to our community. Do something radically loving. And so uh, Pastor Josh is incurring, uh, encouraging us to do something radically loving with your house or with your portfolio or, or with your free evenings or with your job. And the more this happens, the more striking and fruitful the witness of this church, this body of believers, will be for Jesus in our community. We want them to see that. Because in seeing that, then they would start to see the real Jesus. From time to time, I would, uh, as a pastor, get a question to the effect of, Uh, Pastor, we've noticed that many of your messages are delivered as though everyone in the room was already saved. Shouldn't your messages be a little bit more evangelistic? Shouldn't we have an altar call every Sunday? As an old-time Baptist, I guess, I can identify with that question. Because growing up in the Baptist church, we did. We had an altar call every Sunday. And that's a good thing. But, not always, at least in my opinion. I'm not speaking for anybody but myself here. I'm not speaking for the board. I'm not speaking for Pastor Josh. But I want to be able to communicate this clearly to you. Uh, It can be, in my opinion, a mistake for the pastor to come up here every week and preach to unbelievers. Because there probably aren't a lot of them out here in the first place. That leaves a lot of people out here already disconnected. But for me, following that pattern can, be, can lead to a mindset in the believing flock that church services are where people get saved and that preachers are the ones that win them to the Lord. And I think both of those ideas are in error. And over the long haul, I believe those ideas can be destructive to the local church. Again, I'm not speaking for Pastor Josh, but I, I think the connection here for me is the recent leading that he is, is doing in the matter of outreach to our community indicates that he has a similar mindset. Our worship services here on Sunday are primarily for gathering the believers together praising God and worshiping worshiping Him for who He is, for what He does, what He has done, and what He will do. Our worship services are also for equipping and empowering His saints to live out His good news throughout their week in front of families and friends and the people in the community, their neighbors, their co-workers. Our worship services are for spiritually nourishing and encouraging 
the discouraged, supporting the weak, building one another up. That You've heard the word edification. That's what it means. Edification, building each other up. Now don't get me wrong. I pray there are times when the Spirit is moving so powerfully among us that he reaches out to the hearts of someone who's here who has never heard the gospel before or never heard it with his heart before. And that person is moved to respond and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. I pray that happens, and it should happen any time that we have an unbeliever in, in church. And I love those times. And our churches, our services always have a standing invitation. I guess I should say that right now in case you unbeliever are sitting out there. You have a standing invitation. Please make that decision for Jesus today. But the bulk of our evangelism takes place out there. It takes place Monday through Saturday. And it's done by all of us, not just the preacher. That is our journey to Jerusalem. When we live with his love, not for luxury or not for vengeance or whatever it is, we become the most compelling evangelists Christ has to offer the world. We are the invitation, the altar call, if you will, for unbelievers to respond to him. So my prayer today on this Palm Sunday is that each of us here at First Baptist Church would set our faces toward Cambria or San Simeon or Cayucas or Morro Bay or Slow or wherever our Jerusalem is. Set our faces in that direction and join Jesus on the road that he walked to Calvary. I would pray that we would see and embrace his journey as our journey. Would you pray with me today as the team comes back? Lord, first I want, to, I want to start by confessing that too many times I take my eyes off of that road, that journey that you have taken. I take my eyes off the journey that you have me on to call others to your saving sacrifice. Even as we open this scripture and we study this story, Lord, I pray that you would motivate everyone in this room, first of all, to make sure that they do know you as Lord and Savior of their life. Not as an earthly king yet, but as a spiritual king now, a spiritual Lord. Lord, may we as a people... A, a local church. We're not the church, we're just a church. <laughs> but as we, as part of the church, may we see that journey that you took for us with your face set toward Jerusalem. And may we be willing to make that our journey among the people of our community, whether it's here, somewhere else in California, somewhere else across the nation of the world, it doesn't matter. Our journey is that journey, to walk along. In, in loving and, and sacrificial service. And then one day, we will serve with you when you come to make this your complete kingdom with all believers. Thank you, Lord, for what you did that week. Thank you for your commitment 
to endure all that you endured and offering yourself as a sacrifice, a redemptive sacrifice for our sins so that we might have the opportunity to spend eternity with you and our Father in heaven. We are so grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.